with a bit of a difference in that it's, it's, it's kind of not a sermon. Uh, that would be quite different from what we do. We are a church where we like to, uh, we love the Bible because it shows us Christ and tells us all about Jesus, tells us all about God's great salvation. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about him and that's why we enjoy it. Uh, it is truly Word Alive. It's a living and active book that we love delving into deeply because it brings us closer to God as he communicates with us and as we respond to him in prayer and in worship and in praise and in obedience and action. Um, but we love preaching through books of the Bible. And if you come back next week, you're going to see us preaching through books of the Bible again. Uh, we love doing that. So please do come back. But tonight is kind of, I don't know, I feel like our sermons sometimes, it's like taking you in a car and taking you on a journey. But tonight we're not going anywhere. We're just looking under the bonnet and pointing to lots of different mechanics and things like that. But I hope it will be helpful for you as we think through how to read the Bible. Now, it's a very, very important thing to think about because I would say and argue very, very strongly, uh, though not aggressively, that reading the Bible and understanding the Bible rightly is a matter of life and death. Uh, did you realize that? It, it really is uh, quite a significant thing to take this thing called that we claim to be the word of God in our hands and to read it and try and understand it. Uh, it might sound quite dramatic, but let me give you an explanation as to why I would say that it's a matter of life and death. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, in one of the accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus is, as he often was, in conversation with Pharisees. Now, Pharisees in those days were, like, were the religious leaders of the day. And these were the kind of guys who knew the Bible inside out. They would memorize it. They would have little verses sewn into their tunics and wrapped around their wrists. Uh, they would be responsible for explaining the Bible to people, telling people what it meant. And they tried really hard to live according to it. So they were like Bible men. Um, but it seems in this chapter, Matthew 12, Jesus is, is picking up on the fact that though they might have been reading it, they've not really been so careful in their reading or careful in their understanding of what they've been reading. So they end up asking questions about some of the tiniest, most insignificant details about maybe where certain laws apply. And Jesus is responding to them in Matthew 12, saying three times in quick succession, have you not read? Uh, have you not read? Uh, have you not read? And for them, I mean, don't miss this. That would be a really offensive question to ask a Pharisee. You know, uh, have you not read? <laughs> of course I've read it. I could quote you it and its surrounding context. From memory, these guys could say. So it would have been shocking to them to hear this. Of course, they had read it, but this was Jesus' point. They hadn't been careful in their reading. They hadn't been careful to try and understand exactly the point of the text and hold to that. Instead, they focused on insignificant detail, really. To the point that, by their misunderstanding, they failed to see the Son of God standing before them, even having an argument with them. That's what moves Jesus on to say, having said already three times, have you not read, have you not read, have you not read, to say, and you sense the compassion in his voice, if only you had known what these words mean. If 
only you had known what these words mean. That's quite a thing to say. And I wonder if you would bear with me tonight as we look through the mechanics of how to read the Bible. But staying with me, realizing the significance of this, it's a, it's a matter of life and death. Because maybe tonight, if you know what some of these words mean that we're going to walk through tonight, then you might know life and recognize the Lord Jesus Christ who calls you and invites you to believe in him even tonight. So do you know how to read the Bible? And do you appreciate the fact that we actually have one? Because people have fought wars and shed blood to have this book in our hands. But how do we actually handle it? Well, here's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to walk you through that framework. And I'm going to explain certain questions that we can ask in accordance uh, uh, to help us understand the text that we approach. And I want us to do that uh, to have an example alongside that. So we're going to look at Psalm 1 as well. So actually, why don't you turn to Psalm 1 just now, and we'll read it together. Uh, psalm 1, handy enough, is a psalm that is about God's Word. So we're going to read Psalm 1. And if you're new to church, or new to the Bible, if there's a red one in front of you, you'll get one. Uh, you'll see that on page 543. Uh, we read from Psalm 19 earlier, so if you found that, it's just a couple of pages before that. And this is what Psalm 1 says. This is God's word. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. This is God's word. So I basically have three, three points tonight. Three questions that will help you as you seek to learn how to read the Bible and do it well. What? So what? Now what? Okay? What? What does it say? Uh, so what? What does it mean? And now what? What should I do in response to reading and understanding this text? So uh, first of all, we're going to look at what. Now, what does it say? This is basically observation, okay? No doubt many of you have seen news bulletins on the TV where we have, for example, Hugh Edwards saying we're now going to join Orla Guerin on the ground in Lebanon, you know, and then even as he's explaining that we're about to go and join Orla Guerin as she's on the ground in Lebanon, you have on screen not Hugh Edwards, but a picture of either the world or, or, or a spanned out uh, view of the Middle East. And then as he says the words Orla Guerin, you are then zoomed right in. Okay, you've seen that before. You've seen that, I am sure. Maybe you've played with it, things like this on Google Earth or Google Maps, you're smiling because I know you've all zoomed in and zoomed out. That's what you've done. Um, so you begin basically with this aerial view, okay, 
uh, a high up view, and then you zoom into a street level view. Uh, when it comes to answering the observation question, what does the text say, I think this is a good thing to keep in mind, and I find this helpful uh, for myself, although the process uh, should really be reversed. Uh, what we should do is start with the ground perspective. So this is kind of like Google Street View, if you like. On Google Street View, you can walk along a street and you can observe what's there. You can see whether there are trees in front of a house, you can see a door number, etc. You might even see someone cycling past in the street. And you progress through that street one click at a time. I think that's what we should do in the first step of our Bible interpretation. Walking through a passage of the Bible that we turn to, it can be anyone really, but we're looking at Psalm 1 tonight, and taking one verse at a time, taking time to notice the ground level view. So in other words, trying to take in some of the detail of the text that's in front of you. And quite simply, that involves reading it. Uh, reading it and rereading it and rereading it. Uh, that's a good thing to do. And we should know, of course, that there is a difference between just reading and actual observation. Uh, in, the, in the adventures of uh, Sherlock Holmes, there's an interchange between Holmes and Watson where Holmes says, uh, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room, haven't you, Watson? Oh, hundreds of times, says Watson. Then how many are there, he asks. How many? I don't know. Uh, quite so, says Holmes. You have not observed, and yet you have seen. That is just my point. Now, I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. So there's a difference between, I would say, reading a Bible verse and actually observing what is in it. And this is what the what question is all about. So read and reread these verses. And all the while you're doing that, try to soak in the words and the detail, trying to pull them into your brain, figure out what it all means. And let me just offer one or two questions that might help you in doing so. Uh, you, can, you can ask questions in relation to grammar and syntax. How excited are you? What words are used? Uh, are they words that we're familiar with? Do you know what chaff is? Uh, do you need to go away and look up what chaff is, for example? Uh, are there any editorial comments in the text where it explains something for you so it's not part of the narrative or it's not something that's said in the text, but actually is something that the author of the book, that chapter, has added in to give us some insight. Um, what, uh, what's the tone and feel of the passage? Uh, what do you sense from that? You can ask questions in relation to structure and flow. So is there a noticeable structure to the passage? Uh, can you isolate the main points and maybe the main sub-points you might be helped by looking for questions like uh, therefore or for or, or but and questions like that. You might look for repeated words or phrases uh, for some central ideas that keep coming up, maybe stated positively one second, stated negatively in the next verse, for example. Uh, these are some things that we can look to and look for. See if there are any time frames involved. And the next day, Jesus went to, for example. That helps you figure out where a passage starts and where a passage ends, for example. So these are simple observation questions. And that would, be, that would give us something of the Google Street View, the ground perspective. 
then we should pan out a little bit and look for an aerial perspective. And maybe just as you would zoom out from your detailed street view to get an idea of uh, the, the general location of the place you've been considering, maybe to find your bearings, you go to the aerial perspective, see what's going on around about this specific passage that you're looking at. And this is where context comes in. Uh, and, and I think taking verses out of context or passages, paying attention to the passage, but no attention whatsoever to the surrounding context, I think is one of the biggest pitfalls that, that there is when it comes to uh, observing the text and interpreting the text that's before us. I mean, I knew a guy in Dundee who took 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 out of context. He quoted, those who get drunk, get drunk at night as, uh, as basically the Bible's teaching on alcohol consumption. So in his view, as long as the sun was set, you could drink as much as you like. Clearly, a misinterpretation, just to be clear. Uh, he had a very blinkered view, obviously, that just suited his own desires. And that's another thing. It's not just the misunderstanding of words that can lead to a bad interpretation, you understand. It's, it's a failure to approach the text with a, an attitude of humility, isn't it? It's when we come... When we desire, we want to see what we want to see. And we're like, whoa, I've got a proof text. We've got a verse that allows me to do this, this, and that. And really, if we take into account the context, the scriptures do not permit the kind of application that you maybe take it to. Or me. It's not just you. Um, we need to read verses in their context and passages in their context. Uh, it's not a foreign thing to us. Actually, we do that with every other form of literature careful reading of the text then involves reading any verses in the Bible in the context of the passage and the passage in the context of course of the chapter and then the chapter in the context of the book. So look at context. Uh, another thing you can look for is authorial intent. Uh, what did the author mean? What was the author aiming at whenever he wrote this down? Uh, and this is, sometimes this is crystal clear for us to see uh, for example, in Luke chapter 1, it's really, really clear. Uh, Luke tells us who's writing it, who he's writing to, and what he's writing for. He says, since I myself, that's Luke, have carefully investigated everything that is about Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So the authorial intent is there. I, Luke, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, so that you can have certainty in the gospel. It's quite simple. But in other books of the Bible, it's not so clear. We maybe have to do a little bit more digging. We maybe have to take into consideration uh, a stream of thought, for example. Uh, you'll be helped greatly in those times by reading texts in their context. Another thing that helps us in this, getting this aerial perspective as we, as we observe the text uh, is asking questions of genre. Now, everybody knows there are different kinds of literature that communicate things in slightly different ways. Uh, so the songs that we listen to, for example, on our iPad, uh, iPads, you can if you want, iPods mainly, are, uh, are not prosaic. They're more like poetry. They use rhyme, they use rhythm, uh, they use more metaphors than, for example, a letter might. Then, of course, you have narratives, stories, 
which again are stylistically quite different to poetry or others. Then you've got letters like Paul's letter to the Romans, for example, which is more prosaic and far more logical in its uh, structure and flow. These kind of genres are all found in the Bible. And I think it's helpful when it comes to interpretation to know if a passage you're looking at falls into a certain genre or which genre it actually falls into. So is it a letter? Is it a narrative like Mark's gospel or Luke's gospel uh, or Genesis? Is it a letter like Romans or Philippians? Uh, Does it contain uh, structured logic with commands and instructions, maybe clear doctrinal statements or... Or is it more like the book of Proverbs, which just has more metaphors in it and wisdom? Uh, So that's your aerial perspective. Then we're going to zoom out even further. You didn't even know there was another one. But there is. Zooming out to gain the satellite perspective. So ground perspective like Google Street View. Aerial perspective like zooming out in Google Maps. This satellite perspective is a full-on Google Earth view. Uh, You've got to take in the whole globe. You've got to take this context question uh, to, the, to the fullest degree. And when it comes to Bible observation, you want to see where this passage that you're looking at and the book in which it's located actually fit into the whole storyline of the Bible. Uh, so where is it? Is it in the Old Testament or is it in the New Testament? Uh, was it written before Christ came uh, or after Christ came? Uh, these are important questions to ask again. As we consider these, they will all help us as we ask the question, what does the text say? Now, the good news is you don't need to be alone in this. Uh, tools are helpful. Uh, just as you might wander around, uh, even if you've got Google Street View, uh, Uh, finding your way around different streets and places and so on. You might have a Lonely Planet guide, for example, just to stop you saying any silly things to taxi drivers like in New York, like I did once. Uh, You know, things that really acclimatize you to the the, the place in which you're in, tools can be useful. And I suppose the equivalent that we've got would be things like Bible commentaries. So people have written books that accompany these books of the Bible. Or maybe a good Bible dictionary. So if you didn't know what chaff was, uh, you could go into one of these dictionaries and look it up. And uh, there are some very, very helpful tools that you can find. And I brought a couple along tonight. Books that help us. If you want a book that's really useful for knowing how to approach, understand, and apply the text, which will give you a look at the different genres in particular, even look, taking a closer look at how you interpret parables. Uh, the, the well-acclaimed uh, Fee and Stuart book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, is excellent. Uh, many of you will probably already have it. I think you can get it in the bookstall downstairs. Um, another book that is helpful for giving you the overall picture, so the kind of satellite view, if you like, of the, the sweep of scripture and what's been said there is Von Roberts' book, God's Big Picture, tracing the storyline of the Bible. It's a very, very helpful book there. If you want a book that's going to help you think through, these questions are, are, can be quite general, though they're useful. But uh, if you want a book that will help you think through and tweak some of these questions so that they're specific to each of the different Bible genres, then David Helm's book, One to One, is fantastic. 
and uh, you can get hold of that. I'm not sure if you can get that downstairs. Maybe you can get it on Amazon. As well as that, if you've got an iPod or an iPad or, or whatever, you can download things like Logos and Accordance for free, which does a lot of the hard groundwork for you, uh, which can, they often have Bible dictionaries and things included in there. And no, I am not getting any royalties from all these things, unfortunately. Uh, but they're very, very helpful tools. These are our friends that we're not reliant on them. Uh, we trust that God has spoken to us through his word and given us his spirit who illumines and sheds light on the text that we read so that we can understand it. It truly does make wise the simple and I am very, very glad of that. I need that. So taking the what question, the observation questions, go back with me to Psalm 1. And let's have a look and try and apply some of this. Okay, the ground view, if you like, of Psalm 1. You could say what you have in the first half is a description of a man whose delight is in God's word. Okay, uh, verse 2 says that his delight is in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is a phrase for really the first five books of the Bible, which God has spoken. Uh, and on his law, he meditates day and night. So you can see what his focus is on. But the second half really describes a wicked man. Um, and there's a comparison here. And verse 6 basically closes the psalm by comparing these two men side by side. Now, a, a more detailed view of that, you could say in verses 1 to 3, you have this blessed man, uh, first of all, described negatively. So in terms of what he doesn't do, so notice the way that the sentences are phrased. He does not uh, walk in the counsel of the wicked or, so the does not is still applying here, stand in the way of sinners or does not sit in the seat of mockers. So he's described negatively. These are the things that he does not do. And then he's described positively in verse 2 in terms of what he does. He's delighted with and devoted to the counsel of God in his word. And then verse 3, he's described metaphorically. Uh, as a result, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. So there's your ground view of this man. Posit uh, a negative view, what he doesn't do, a positive view, what he does do, and metaphorically speaking, the result is uh, he's blooming. He is, he is flourishing uh, in life. And then verses 4 and 5, the wicked man, he's, we're just straight into description that is metaphorical. He's like chaff. He is just this worthless stuff that you throw away. It's not used for anything. It's only good to be burned. It's, in other words, it's not fruitful if you compare it with the first guy. It's blown around. It's not stable. And it's only good for the fire. Verse 6 draws it together. You basically have two ways to live. Uh, one way is a way to eternal life, and one is a dead end. Now, all of that can be gleaned just from applying these uh, texts, applying some of these questions uh, at the ground view, this ground perspective. Let's zoom out a little bit and take the aerial perspective. What does it tell us? What do we see about Psalm 1? Well, it's a single unit of text, so it's not part of a big, long narrative. Okay, it's, but it's placed at the start of a whole book of songs that were used as part of Israel's worship back in those days. Still is used in our worship today, of course. Um, but it tells us that it's a song. Uh, 
And we know that because it's placed at the beginning of a whole book of songs. And the way that it's written tells us, so there's no, there's no person mentioned in here. There's not a, a named person. So we're not, we don't have an historical account. There's no note of any places visited or anything like that. But there is metaphorical language that saturates the whole psalm so we can see that it, the genre would be that of poetry. Um, not telling a story, not a list of commands to obey, but it is rich with metaphors and pictures. Zoom out this little bit further for the satellite perspective. Well, we can see what it is in terms of the whole sweep of Scripture. It was written in the Old Testament uh, before Christ came and was first used by the people of God in Old Testament times. Um, but knowing, of course, that we see Christ in all of Scripture, uh, as was mentioned earlier in our service, we can see actually that Jesus is the epitome of this blessed man who so delighted in the scriptures, meditated on them, quoted them throughout his life, and his was the most fruitful life ever. I mean, who, who else has a life that has reaped a harvest of uh, forgiveness of sin for those who didn't deserve it? Or the rewards of eternal life for those who confess that sin and turn from it and turn in faith to believe in Jesus Christ? Um, that, that's, that to me is, a, is the most fruitful life and is unmatched by anyone. So that is 100 miles an hour through observation. The what question. Are you with me? Oh, you are. That's good. Uh, so what is the second question. So what? This is, the, this is where you get to the nitty-gritty of the actual interpretation. So a lot of the hard work is done in the, the groundwork of asking the what question. Knowing the right questions to ask there actually makes the interpretation side of things, side of Bible reading, a whole lot easier for us. Uh, what does it mean? We should be asking the question regularly. What does the author intend here? And you'll notice that that question was asked in the first, in the first part, on the what side of things, and the observation side of things. These questions do overlap, and many of them are good just to keep on asking all the way through the process. But what did the author mean? Uh, so some helpful questions at this point. If you have garnered and gathered together all this different information through your uh, exploration of the what questions, you can then look through all that information and ask yourself questions like, what is the point of this passage? Okay, now that I've got all that information, I understand what chaff is. You know, I understand the contrast between the blessed man and the wicked man. But what's the point? What, what, is, what is the author trying to get across here? What is the dominant thought? You might have an idea of what that is in your mind. And I think a good question to ask at that point, as you think, oh, I think I understand this text. You might be benefited. Uh, you might benefit from asking, is there anything in the text that would negate my conclusions? That would throw a spanner in the works in terms of my conclusions? It's a good question to ask. And of course, you can ask, what does the author want me to do or not do as a result of this? Are there any specific commands or instructions to be obeyed? Does the passage offer any insight into the consequences of following or not following the kind of commands in here? And in addition, we might just ask, well, what does this passage tell me about God and who he is? These are some of the bigger questions. What does this passage tell me about mankind and what's his problem? What's the solution? What does this passage tell me about Jesus and what he's done? What does the passage tell me about the church and what it should do? 
does this passage inform my understanding of the gospel or any other doctrines or teachings in the Bible? And again, we can take those kind of interpretative questions and apply them to a text like Psalm 1. So looking at Psalm 1, we we quite clearly see the author intends for us to see this contrast. On the one hand, a blessed man. On the other hand, a wicked man. One who does not live according uh, to the counsel of the wicked and instead delights in God's counsel. The other uh, does not delight in God's counsel and you could say lives according to the worldly wisdom. That would be the assumption that we would make. There is only one or the other. One man likened to the most well-nourished tree that you could imagine the other likened to the most dry and useless substance really that was around in those days. One fruitful and prosperous, the other a worthless waste of space. One is blessed, the other is judged. And when you start to talk about blessing and judgment, and as you take that wider lens view, this Google Earth view, if you like, of the scope of even the Old Testament, you will understand that the themes of blessing and judgment are huge when reading the Old Testament. As God makes a covenant and a promise with his people, if you live according to these ways, you will be blessed. But if you forget my teachings, if you do not hold to my counsel, then you will be judged. So Psalm 1 is actually a phenomenally tight, condensed version of the law of God as we have it in the Old Testament. So basically, in terms of interpretation, as you can see, the focus is on these two men and the focus is on the contrast. So what's the interpretation for us? Well, what's the meaning behind it? Well, quite simply, the author is setting out for us there are two ways to live. You can either live according to the counsel of the Lord as revealed in his spoken word or you can live according to the counsel of the world. Those who are described in verse 1 as wicked sinners, mockers. So having come to that point of interpretation, thinking, okay, I, I think I get what this passage means, we then move on to the third question, now what? And this is the application question. What does it actually mean for me? What significance does this actually have for my life? What should I do as in response to this? Well, we understand, of course, that Scripture is profitable. We were thinking about that this morning. It's, it's good for us, showing us the right track, showing us when we get off track, showing us how to get back on track, etc. Uh, all of which tells us again that that God has spoken to us by his word for a reason. That he has gone to such lengths to speak to and communicate to a people who might as well be described, again, as just walking away from God with their fingers in their ears, singing some song at the top of their voice. He has made efforts to come and communicate with us, to show us who he is and speak, but for what purpose? So that we might change so that we might know him and so that we might change to be like him. That's what God's will is for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he wants us to be, like his son. So we're not to read the Bible or passages in the Bible just for information, as one author has said, but for transformation. God wants us to act on what we have in here. That's why there's a, a now what question. It doesn't just stop at so what? So we can go, oh, that's interesting. No, now what? What should I do as a result of this? And we are aided in this, you understand, that God not only encourages us and teaches us that we should change to be conformed into the likeness of his son, but he has made it possible for us by the power and leading of his Holy Spirit. He's given himself to help us. The apostle Peter puts it this way in the New Testament. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. What does that mean? What means become more like Jesus and escape the corruption or in the world caused by evil desires. It sounds very like to me the blessed man and the wicked man, does it not? So it's not just truth for knowledge's sake. That would just puff us up and make us prideful. No, it's truth that should be applied in our lives so that we might change. So we can ask again, what does the author want? What does the author intend for us to do? And I think in Psalm 1, as we look back at that, the answer really is obvious. There aren't, it's poetry, there aren't any specific instructions here. But as you read through this, it's just assumed that you're going to identify with one of these men. And it's assumed that at the end of the psalm, the question is going to be asked, are you like the wicked man whose fate ends in judgment? And what will he have to offer for a God-denying, worthless life? Or will you be like the blessed man? who even when the world was screaming its counsel at him, mocking him for being an absolute idiot for following this counsel, delighted in the law of the Lord and loved the ways and the wisdom of God and saying, this, this is for me. The answer is obvious. The instruction is obvious for us. Don't follow the wisdom of sinners or walk as men do or delight in their God-mocking ways. It will only end in judgment. Instead, set your heart on a God-honoring life, loving his word and loving him through growing in your knowledge of who he is and seeing the ways that that is possible for you despite your sinfulness. As I mentioned earlier, that Jesus Christ is the epitome of that blessed man who has lived that life that you could never live. 
that life that truly looks like that flourishing tree by the streams of water, bearing fruit that others enjoy, though they didn't deserve it, though they didn't do anything to grow it, and that we can put our faith and trust in him. And because of his grace in our lives, despite the fact that we trip up, even as we try and apply this every single day of our lives, even as we fail to apply it as we ought, we are given grace to press on. And over time, we will see by his grace and with his Spirit's help that we will become more and more like Jesus. And our witness to the world will be more and more Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus made a way for you sinners to come to him and know him. If only you would believe. We read the Bible not for information but for transformation. And every week that we preach it here and every day that we read it on our own accord or any time we get together with a friend and read it one-to-one or in a Bible study with a group of people, that's scripture and life meet. And God is at work through his word and by his spirit showing us Christ, showing us how we should live and showing us that even when we see our failures, Christ lived that life for us that we can follow him still and live by his grace. My encouragement for you would be to take this Bible in your hands and read it and believe it to the hilt. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, the teaching of this Bible, this word of God is clear to us, to all who seek understanding and seek to know God and to obey him. For the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise as simple. These precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. They are radiant, giving light to the eyes. May you, even tonight, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, may you be enabled in your Bible reading. If you'd like someone to read it with you, we'd love to do that. Uh, We'd love to sit down and read through a few passages with you, talk through what it means, just applying these kind of questions, really. It's nothing magical. It's nothing mystical. You don't need a degree in theology to be able to do it. You just need to come with a Bible in your hand and a heart that's open, ready to ask questions. Yes, of the text, but to let the text question you. Uh, Would you be willing to do that? Come and speak to us afterwards. We would love to do that with you or set that up with someone. And brothers and sisters of Charlotte Chapel, uh, let us never presume to be good interpreters for we all know our feelings. Uh, Let us read this with each other. And may you be like the noble Bereans in Acts 17 who did not even take what the apostle Paul said as being the truth, but took what he said and measured it up alongside the scriptures to see if what he said was true. May you do that with me 
and Paul and Andy and anyone who stands in our pulpit and preaches God's word to you. And may we, as we study the Bible, read the Bible, delight in the Bible, meditate day and night on the Bible, know the fruitfulness of the gospel in our lives and in the church. Let's pray.